So a lot of you will ask me, all right, well, how do you come to these conclusions? How do you find these things in the Bible? Much of what I do up here is biblical theology. And what biblical theology is, is it says, what does the whole Bible say about something? How do we understand what the Bible teaches in one part by understanding what the Bible teaches throughout the whole council? And so we're going to do a little bit of that this morning. And the great thing about biblical theology is the more time you spend in the Bible, the more you understand the connections in the Bible, the more the teachings and the themes start to weave together. And you see, it's not a disconnected Old and New Testament. It's not disconnected prophets in Psalms, in Gospels. It's one God, one message throughout time to his people. And he's revealing redemptive history to us. And having a strong and robust biblical theology, just understanding what the Bible says about God, helps us to read the Bible better, helps to encourage us in our, our, our study and, and learn what God has to teach us. And so this morning we're going to do two mini biblical theologies. Uh, and God in his providence, in the first one, we're going to look at the relationship between the Father and the Son. I didn't know this was going to fall on Father's Day, but that's, that's what the Lord does. And so the whole reason we know what it, what it means to be a good father is because we have a good father in heaven. And the second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at a biblical theology of judgment. And this is not a light subject. subject. It's not a fun subject, but judgment is spoken about so much throughout Scripture, but many people like to ignore it because it makes them uncomfortable. We read Psalm 110, and Psalm 110 makes a lot of people uncomfortable because the loving Jesus with a sheep around his neck is now dripped in blood. And it's not his blood on the cross. It's the blood of those who hate him. And we're going to look at that today from Jesus's own mouth. And we're going to see what scripture says about these things. And we're also going to look at themes of authority, life. And as always, we'll look at some of the already not yet aspects of the kingdom of God come now, but the kingdom of God not yet completed. And so we're going to go deep this morning. And all puns intended, I don't want to bury you in theology, but we're going to go deep. And so hopefully you've had your coffee. Hopefully you're paying attention and hopefully you, you get this because understanding Christ's authority and his role of judge and the authority that the father has given him really helps us understand what we are saved from and what we're encouraging others to be saved from and what we are saved to. So this is really important to who we are as believers and we can't ignore this. And so we're going to dig in. We're going to dig deep and ready or not. Here we go. Last week in chapter five, we looked at Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath. And so what we saw was that Jesus did this great thing. This man laid on his side for 38 years and Jesus healed him, made him whole in an instance. But the Jews hated Jesus for it. The Jews got all bent out of shape because he didn't do it according to their expectations. And Jesus says some very piercing words at the end of our section last week. Starting in verse 17, they complain about him doing works on the Sabbath. They, they claimed that Jesus' healing of a withered man, or withered man who had no life within his bones, was a work and therefore violated the Sabbath. So what does Jesus say? Verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. And I am statement that equates him with the father. And then John gives us a little view, a peek into the mind of a legalistic Jew. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath. Now, their initial claim was that the man who picked up his mat was breaking the Sabbath. 
But really why they hated Christ was because he was breaking their Sabbath. So while they were persecuting the man, they were really persecuting Christ. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, the Jews were acting like this is something out of the blue. How could anyone dare call God their father? How could anyone dare equate themselves with God? These were Jews who were informed by the Old Testament. These were Jews who did not really know their Old Testament. And we're going to see in just a moment, um, we're going to look at a biblical theology of the inner working of the father and the son. Pre-Jesus. I could be up here all day and we're not going to. We're going to look at a few examples in the Old Testament of Israel declaring God as father and recognizing a son in association with the father. And that's what biblical theology does is it helps to understand what the whole Bible says about a subject. Because one argument you will get from many people toward Christianity is that, well, you worship a trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you this. You worship a trinity, but there is no trinity in the Bible. And I will challenge Jehovah's Witness or anyone who says that you have not read your Bible. What biblical theology will will teach us is that what God declares about himself is attributed to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet, there are enough distinctions between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit. And so we see that laid out through Scripture. And we have to impose a word like Trinity on it. And even that can't describe what what, what scripture says about God. Even that the church has been debating from the very beginning and most heresies or most doctrines that are against scripture arise from a misunderstanding of who Jesus was and what he did. And so this is really important. So understanding what God says about himself from Genesis to Revelation helps us understand who he is. And Jesus saying, my father is working and I am working is not the first time that this comes up. But they were acting like they were brand new and they'd never seen this before. And so I want to make the case for this. So uh, I'm going to go pretty quickly through these. If you want to follow me in in your Bible and you guys can move quickly, I encourage you to, but it will be on the screen too. We're going to start in Psalm 2. So Psalms begins with the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked in in Psalm 1. And in Psalm 2, it talks about the nations who hate the Lord, who rage against him. And what is the remedy for those who rage against the Lord? So look at this. This is verse 11 and 12 in Psalm 2. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. In the same breath, serving the Lord and fearing the Lord is equated with kissing the son. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Those who fear the Lord take refuge in the Son. They are blessed in the same breath. God, who is distinctly God, is speaking of a Son who has an anger, and we're going to talk about his his judgment, that will be poured out if you do not take refuge in him. The Psalms continue in this. Uh, The next one will be Psalm 68. In the context of Psalm 68 is God pouring out his his wrath and separating his enemies from the people of God. What does Psalm 68.5 say? For those who come before the Lord, for those who sing to him, for those who cry out to the Lord, God will be a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. The Jews were offended that Jesus associated himself with God. But anyone who cries out to God should see should see him as father, should see themselves as orphans and and widowed and seeing him as their adopted father. This is our holy God. 
Um, again, Psalm 89, 26. We don't have time to go through all of Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a great messianic psalm. I encourage you during the week, homework this week. Read Psalm 89. When, it, when he speaks of an anointed one, when he speaks of David whose throne is forever, we know David is not eternal. Uh, David will not live forever. David will not reign forever. But the house of David, the tribe of, of Judah, which Jesus' lineage came through, he would reign forever. And so there is this great exaltation of David. And you'll see this is great language of God speaking to his anointed one. But what shall that king who will reign forever in Psalm 89 say? He shall say, he shall cry to me. You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And even if the Jews took this literally, that this is speaking specifically of David or a king of Israel. The expectation of the king of Israel would be to cry out to God. You are my father, my God, and rock of my salvation. There was no choice among the Jews. But they blinded themselves to the truth of their own scriptures. Look at the book of Isaiah. I love Isaiah. I could spend so much time in Isaiah. This verse we read every year at Christmas time. We don't think about the association of Jesus. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The incarnation, of course, right? And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We call him the Prince of Peace, but we don't see there is direct association with an everlasting father. There is no separation between the prince and the father. This whole section in Isaiah 9 is about the authority of Christ and how he will reign and how he will govern the nations and how God will deliver everything to this child. This is the gospel 700 years before Jesus walked on the earth. Look at also Isaiah chapter 63, verse 16. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. The same book. Uh, Isaiah is, is proclaiming that Israel does not acknowledge God. Israel does not acknowledge who he is, but he's our father. He's our redeemer. This is a consistent theme in the same book, probably on the same page in most of your Bibles. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Any Jew who knew his scriptures, mind should go to this. But God was not their father. Jesus told them, your father is the devil. You don't make this connection because you don't know this father. And this is where we find ourselves because Jesus is facing those who do not know God as father. And one more text in Malachi 2. Last book in the Old Testament. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? This was written to Israel. This is not written to all the nations. When they say we had one father, they were supposed to be looking to God as the covenant Lord of that nation, and they weren't. They weren't faithful to him. They weren't faithful to one another. Jesus knew this. And so here's where he is speaking to a faithless people. This is not a new concept. God should have been associated uh, with the people of Israel. But they were upset and they were, they were angry that he called himself equal with God. So now we're going to pick up in verse 19 and read through. 
Verse 19 says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear him will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are eternal. You need nothing to be added to you. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are holy beyond our imagination. But yet, you set forth this plan of redeeming us who hated you before our very first breath. And you put your plan in motion and you spoke to our fathers in the faith throughout history and told them of you as a good father who loved us so much he would send to his son. Help us to see your word as this declaration of encouragement to believers. To find our identity in your very words. To see you as having all power and all authority and all glory. To kiss the Son and take our, find our refuge in him. And Lord, I just pray that you would keep my words clear this morning. That I would proclaim your truth and only your, your truth that none of my desires would get in the way. And I just pray that you open ears and open hearts that we may glory in what you are doing and that we may fall before you in worthy and honor and praise because you are worthy. Lord, I just pray this morning that your spirit will guide and teach and convict and instruct in all that Jesus has said. In, Jesus, in his name we pray, amen. So this is what I love about Jesus. I love that when the Pharisees are thinking in their hearts how they want to kill him because of what he said, the average human would be tempted to say, well, I don't really want you to be angry at me, so let me tone down my language here. Jesus leans in even further. He said, you think that upsets you? That I say I'm working and my father working? You didn't see nothing yet. Listen to what I'm about to say now. Jesus leans in. He knows what they're thinking. He knows they want to kill him. And he leans in and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he has seen the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. 
Jesus right away is saying, don't be mad that I'm associating myself with the father because I cannot do anything other than he uh, anything other than he does. Not I won't do it. I can't do it. I can't be apart from the will of the father. He challenges their assertion that Jesus is equal to the father and he doubles down on it. Not only am I equal, but I do everything he does just like he does because I see him do it and you don't know him and you don't know me. These are fighting words to Jews who put all of their identity in that they were the people of God. Yet were blind to the scriptures, yet were blind to the Messiah who was standing right in front of them. And his response to the claim of you're a Sabbath breaker, he says, I can't. Because the Son of Man, like we saw last week, is Lord of the Sabbath. And I do exactly what my Father has commanded me to do. Sabbath is for good, and I am doing good, and I restored a man, and you hate me for it. The son has complete agreement with the father. And I tried to put this in my words and I couldn't. Uh, Very often I find myself being humbled by great preachers of old. John Brown, a great Puritan preacher. And anytime I try to rephrase something and put it in my own words, it's just I don't do it justice. And so I want to read this 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 quote from uh, from his sermon on this text. Listen to what he says. He says, all is of the father. All is by the son. Did the Father create the universe? So did the Son. Does the Father uphold the universe? So does the Son. Does the Father govern the universe? So does the Son. Is the Father the Savior of the world? So is the Son. Surely the Jews did not err when they concluded that our Lord made himself equal with God. Surely he who is so intimately connected with God that he does what God does, does all God does, and does all in the same manner in which God does it, surely such a person cannot but be equal with God. Love that. I wish I could speak like that. Jesus, there is no escaping his equality with the Father. He does nothing apart from the Father. He does exactly what he sees the Father do. And so there's a logical question that arises for us. So if the Son can do nothing apart from the Father, if the Son is so connected with the Father that he always does his will, what does that say about us when we try to do things apart from God? What areas in our lives are we trying to do things setting Jesus over here? What areas in our lives is Jesus not Lord over? Jesus said in John 15, and we'll get there, that apart from me, you can do nothing. But every day we try to do things in our own strength, in our own ideas, apart from God. We segment this part of our life as being devoted to God, and this part over here is my little pet project, and I'll, I'll, I'll let God in later once I figure it out. Anyone ever done that besides me? Because the truth is, is that anything you attempt apart from the Son will come to nothing. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you attempt anything apart from him, it will turn out to be nothing. That's a a strong claim. It's not my words, it's Jesus' words. If the son is that connected to the father, how connected should we be to the son? He goes on. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. What are the greater works? We're going to see those in just a moment. 
He's going to give life. He's going to judge and he's going to resurrect everyone. Those are the the great works that Jesus is going to explain in just a moment. But what we see here is that the father loves the son so much that he shows him everything. Don't we show the ones we love the most the things that are most valuable to us? Don't we show the ones we love the most the things that are most dear to us? Because the father is so close to the son, loves him so much. He shows him that. And because our God, Father, Son, and Spirit loves us so much, he shows us everything he's doing so that we may marvel. So that we may just rejoice in what God is doing. I'm going to move through these pretty quickly. And there's a couple things I want to kind of lean into. Verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. We see a lot of equality here. The work of the father and son. The plans of the father and son. The life that comes out of the father and son. There's equality between them. And the son gives life to whom he will. Life is not something that is owed. Life is not something that we have within ourselves, in and of ourselves. The power of life and death is in the name of Jesus. And he gives life to whom he wills. Our God is in control. Our God knows the days of your life before one of them was lived. And he gives life to whom he will. We'll get into that theme of life in just a moment. So now we get into the distinctions between son and father. The father judges no one. This is this first distinction so far. We've seen all of the proofs of Jesus' deity and all the connection between the son and the father. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. There's a major distinction here. Why is this so important? Because man sinned against God. Man is held accountable to God's laws, but also to the expectations of man. And it is only the God-man, the priest according to the, to the order of Melchizedek forever, the king of kings, the prophet of prophets who can judge them. That's why we read Psalm 110 earlier. It is only the God-man, the perfect God and the perfect man who has the right and the relationship to judge man according to God's standards. This is important. So it was only by Jesus coming on earth and living as a man and dying as a man and reigning as God that he can judge man. Everybody with me? Verse 23. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that. Why does the son have judgment? That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. God's whole purpose and plan in this is that he can put the son on full display. He wants people to honor the son the same way they honor the father. The whole purpose that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. If Jesus is not God, this is blasphemy. How can someone other than God take the same honor as God? Unless he's God. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, so far we see in verse 17, they're equal in work. 18, they're equal in in essence. And then they're equal in purpose. And now they're equal in honor. How much more convincing do you need that Jesus is equal with the Father or just crazy? And it brings up another question. We hear this a lot in our culture. Do all roads lead to God? 
Well, everyone will find God essentially when they seek him in their own way. God reveals himself in many different ways. No, he doesn't. Scripture never says that. We never see God revealing himself in different ways. If you don't honor the Son, you cannot honor the Father. There is no way to God the Father without going through the Son. If Jesus is not Lord, then there is no way to God. Period. And we need to be clear on that when people say this this foolishness. Because it is blasphemous and it should offend us. Because God has done everything in redemptive history to glorify the Son, to lift Him up, to give Him all honor. And all this world around us wants to do is minimize the Son. Say, well, we just set Him aside. Or we just focus on the Jesus we like and forget this judge stuff. Well, they haven't read Jesus' own words. They're so blinded to it that they don't want to hear it. There is no knowledge of God. There is no saving faith in God without Jesus as Lord. Verse 24. Again, I'm moving through this quickly because I'm going to spend most of my time on, on the end. If you guys have questions, if this gets too deep, too complicated, I will give you resources. I'd be happy to sit down and, and talk to you. But I, I want you to hear this from me. Uh, most people don't hear how these, the, these things are brought together. And even if it opens up more questions than you've had and you search the scriptures, then my mission is accomplished. I want you to search the scriptures for yourself and see what we're about to get into here. Truly, truly, I say to you, in the Greek, amen, amen. The King James, verily, verily. It's, I am emphasizing this for you to pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. So belief is in agreement with the Son and the Father. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. We talked about this in, in Romans 10. How will they believe if they have not heard? It is the gospel that changes lives. And uh, great are the feet of those who proclaim it. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. I want you um, to look at something interesting here. This word has. It's in the present tense. It's not in the future. Who cares, right? What does that mean? That him who believes has eternal life. It is a possession of yours. It is not contingent on you believing. It is something you possess. This is really, really important. This is present tense because there's a supernatural quality that is possessed by those who have ears to hear. Eternity is within them. Eternity must be within you before you can hear. Why do I care about that? Because what you think and do comes out of who you are. What you think and do comes out of who you are, not the other way around. Let me give you some examples. You're not a great cook if you can put a meal together. You can put a meal together because you're a great cook. If he dunks, he has a 40-inch vertical. No, you can dunk because you have a 40-inch vertical. And we go on and on and on. This is completely opposed to our culture that wants our thoughts and actions to, our, to determine our identity. Because I think these things and do these things, this is who I am. No, Scripture gives us the opposite. You do these things and say these things because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Who you are determines what you do. Those who have eternal life will hear. Those who are given eternal life from the Father, this is not contingent on their response. This is God's plan and God's work within them. Our thoughts and actions do not determine our identity. They reveal our identity. 
Our thoughts and actions do not determine our identity. They reveal our identity. So when we hear, they reveal that we have eternal life within us. There's a theologian, Herman Bovink, and this, unless you want a long six months of reading, you don't have to go through all this. My favorite line in his dogmatics is this. He says, being a Christian is becoming who you are. I love that. Because we're not trying to be something different. We're not trying to achieve something in our own. Christ says, you are mine. And the life of a Christian is becoming who you are. The Father has laid his love on you through the Son by the power of the Spirit. And the entire Christian life is becoming who we are. Because those who have eternal life, they will hear the word. They will believe and they will live. This is exactly what Jesus says here. Whoever believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. One of our favorite verses, Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus is telling us here, when people say there's a discontinuity between Paul and Jesus, there is not. There is now no judgment. You have passed from death to life. There is no condemnation. Why are John and Jesus so obsessed with belief? Every week we talk about belief. Why? Because they want you to have life and avoid judgment. So if John is so concerned with this and Jesus is so concerned with this, what should we be concerned with? That you have life in Christ and avoid judgment. Notice a pattern here. Verse 24, truly, truly, how does it end? The concern is that you have life. See the pattern again in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You see that pattern again. Truly, truly. What's the whole result of everything at the end? That you will live. Jesus' whole point. Amen, amen. Live. Have life in me. Pay attention. This is what's most important. Now here's where we get into deeper waters. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. We're going to talk about the already not yet nature of resurrection in Christ. This is resurrection language. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. If the dead rise, that's resurrection. So here we've got a first resurrection. What is it? It's a spiritual resurrection where you are hearing the word of God, where someone dead can now hear. They've given ears to hear and they're coming to life. Hold on to that for just a moment. We're going to get there later. This first resurrection happens every time someone is born again. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and now you live in Christ. And how does that happen? They hear the voice of the Son. So the time that is now, what marks this present age? The age that we're in now, what marks it? Those who hear the words of the Son and come to life. The dead are rising. Every time someone believes in the name of Jesus Christ, they have risen from death to life. This is the present age. And what can we learn from this? And apart from the Son, you are dead. Without his voice, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You know what else we can hear about this? This is beautiful is that when they hear the gospel and their ears come to life, they're not hearing your voice. They're not hearing my voice. They're hearing the voice of Jesus. They're hearing his voice. It's not our words. It's not our speech. Because when we speak and fumble, and I talked to so many of you who were like, I wish I would have said this to my friend. I wish I would have counseled them in this way. I wish I would have remembered to say this. If they come to life, it's because Jesus is speaking to them. And you can't mess that up. When he gives them ears to hear, they will hear and they will live. And dead men tell no tales unless God speaks to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, believe in me and you will live. 
Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. In the divine sonship, there is also mediatorial authority. What that means is the Son is the mediator. The determination of life and death is in the Son. Faith in him, life. Rejection of him, death. In him, there is life within himself. He needs nothing apart from himself. There is no life apart from Christ. Only life in him. Again, is there a path to God without Christ? Not if the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son also to have life in himself. If they're the source of life, there is no life apart from the Son, apart from the will of the Father. Verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now this is something that many of us would just gloss over. And Jesus uses the Son of Man as a title for himself more than anything else. But we have to understand this. And I would be robbing you of the richness of Scripture. I would be robbing you of an opportunity to exercise biblical theology without doing this. So turn uh, to Daniel for me. And in one term and in one fulfilled prophecy, we're going to tie together the themes of divinity, authority, judgment, and set up resurrection and life with one passage. Ready to do that? Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read a, a big chunk here. But we started with the relationship of the Son and the Father. And the Jews hated this. This is Daniel, the prophet, hundreds of years before. Look at what he says in verse 9. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed. Thrones, plural. How many gods do we serve? Thank you. Thrones were placed. One God, many thrones. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days, if you don't know your biblical theology, this is the Father. The Father takes his seat. And how do we know? We're going to see in just a moment. There's a description of the Father. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning with fire. Sounds like a heavy metal t-shirt. The stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, the court of judgment, and the books were opened. When Jesus says he can do this because he's the son of man, he's referencing Daniel's vision. And this court of judgment, and the father on the throne. And I looked then, Daniel speaking of himself now, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away and their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So often when people read prophecy, they get so concerned with which nation is is which beast. We'll get to that in, in in a moment. That stuff does not matter. It matters who's on the throne and who's you are. That's how that's what we should focus on when we read this, because now we see the ancient of days on his throne. And then I saw in night visions and behold. The clouds of heaven, there came out one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. This is the ancient of days, God himself giving glory to another, telling all the, all the nations to serve him. Jesus sums it up, oh, the father gives all authority to the son. But this is what happened in the spiritual realm. This this divine transference of, of glory and honor for an earthly kingship. Read on. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which should not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. I want to keep reading because this helps tie this all together. And as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me, and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four great kings who shall arise out of the earth. But... The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. The Father gives it to the Son, and the Son gives it to us. This glorious throne room exchange is opened up to the saints of God. So when Jesus says that he's given authority because he's the Son of Man, this is what he's referring to. Turn to Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. So this is what happens in the throne room, the father to the son. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit. And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, so Michael the archangel, who is charged over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since the nation, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn away many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This was shut up. At the time of Daniel, this book was closed. The prophecy was hidden. But the time is now. When Jesus came, he opened back up the prophecy of Daniel and said, look, look at what is being fulfilled in your midst. What Daniel prophesied the son of man to do and the glory that you will receive if you believe in me. Not only will you have life, but you will reign with me. You will shine like the stars. We're not just Christians living here on earth. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a, you are a star that will shine with brilliance forever. So the call to submit to Jesus' authority is not one that should be looked at as a burden for us, but a joy, because this is what we receive through him. All right, back in John. So now we get this son of man title. And now we're going to look at this second resurrection thing. I know I'm going long, but uh, oh well. And he has given authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. The father gives authority to the son. The son is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So if you guys are, are counting, hopefully you've got enough fingers. What resurrection are we on? How many resurrections have we spoken about so far? Just one. So that makes this one two. Okay. <laughs> if you guys can't get that, we're going to have a real hard time with this next part. So there is a first resurrection. It's a spiritual resurrection from death to life. Now, the bodies that are in the tombs, we're now talking about a physical resurrection. And we're going to look forward now that Daniel alluded to, but we see in Revelation chapter 20. So turn to Revelation chapter 20. Keep your finger in John, though, because we are going to go back. Many of you ask me, well, why don't we ever teach on Revelation? Soak it up. This is, this is what we're doing now. 
Revelation can be so distracting, confusing, and I want to get into where that can lead people astray in just a moment. But I want you to see this, this connection here. Because these are words that Jesus is using, and I want us to know our Bibles. I want us to know where Jesus, is, how Jesus is speaking, and how Daniel, 700 years before Jesus, or however many years it was, Jesus and John's vision into the future in Revelation all agree with each other. Look at Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 4. What do we see in Daniel? We saw thrones. And we saw the saints reigning with him in glory. Now what do we see in Revelation? Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So the authority has been given by the Father to the Son, and now it's given to the saints who reign with him. Read on. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So we've got this first resurrection. This is the first resurrection. That's what John tells us. It's a spiritual resurrection. The bodies in the tombs have not come out yet. There's a spiritual resurrection to life in Christ. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Second death, second resurrection, what are we doing here? Very simple. First death, everyone dies. Agreed? Everyone dies physically. But if you are resurrected in the first resurrection, you will not die in the second death. You will not die spiritually because the judgment that is condemnation on the wicked is a spiritual death where you will die perpetually for eternity. Skip over to verse 11, same chapter. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the book were opened. Okay, the the dead are standing before the book. What did we see back in John 5? The tombs are open and everyone's going to hear the voice of the Lord. So now we're seeing this in front of the throne. Fast forward to when this is actually happening. John is seeing into the future here. The dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we've got first resurrection, second second resurrection, first death, second death. The book of life. Anyone know when was the book of life written? Before the foundation of the earth. We're going to get into that in just a second. I want to clear this up as we we wrap that up. But now we see the Son with authority to judge, according to this book, this book of life that was written before the foundation of the earth, but yet at the same time, it's according to deeds. But here's one thing I, I want you to see to bring all this back together. Father, Son, what do we see in the consummation of all things? Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water and life, broad as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. When all things are brought together in their consummation, the thrones become one. The the great throne room of God and the Lamb, spoken of in the same breath. This equality with God, the Son and the Father, will come together perfectly at the end of all things. And out of them will will flow streams of living water. And that will be the, the beginning of the new Jerusalem. 
If you trace through the biblical theology of what Jesus is talking about here, if you look at what the prophets prophesied, what Jesus proclaimed and what John saw in his revelation, you see all of redemptive history laid before you and you see it consummated in the son and the father. Anyone else tired? And (laughs) thank you. Do not marvel at this back in John for an hour is coming when all who are of the tombs will hear his voice. So in the first resurrection, only some hear the voice of of Christ. Those who are dead in their sins and hear his voice, they have eternal life. They possess it. But at the end, they will all hear his voice. Sinner and believer alike. And they're going to come out of their tombs and they're going to be judged. So here I want to, to, to distinguish one more time. So in the already, we have a spiritual resurrection in the physical realm. Resurrection number one. We have a physical resurrection in the spiritual realm. Resurrection number two. Got this? The already, the not yet. Two resurrections, one spiritual to life, one physical to judgment. And this is why the resurrection is so important for us, because Christ accomplished both. Christ rose in bodily form and spiritually so that we might rise with him. There is only resurrection and life in him if he rose from the grave. And if he took our sins with him. That's why resurrection is so important, because if Christ didn't rise, we can't. And if we don't trust in him, there is no life in him. This doctrine of resurrection is so important. And I don't want you guys to get caught up in the when and the where. So many people out there are, when is Jesus coming? Where is he coming? What's going on with this nation, this nation? It does not matter. Don't worry about the when and the where of all of these things in consummation. Worry about the what, the who, and the why. The what is that Jesus rose from the grave and he's coming again. The who is that our faith is in him. And the why is so that we will not face judgment. If you've got the what, the who, and the why, the when and the where does not matter. Amen? Last thought here, and I'm really long, but I, I, I want to give you this. Verse 29, and they come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, they are judged according to what they, what they have done. But we're saved by faith, right? How are they judged by what they have done? We are saved by faith and only by faith. However, you are judged by works. Anyone see a contradiction here? You shouldn't. Because when we are saved by faith, we are saved by whose works? Christ's works. So when Christ worked perfectly on the cross, when he says, my father's working and I am working, that which he completed on the cross, he completed for our sake. So when we are judged, we are not judged according to our works, but according to his. We can only do good because apart from him, we can do nothing. So if Christ does good and we are his, we do, his, we do good because of him. A tree is judged by its fruit. A bad tree will be cut down, as Jesus said. But a good fruit who abides in the true vine, who gets its life and nourishment, its spiritual life from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, they will live and they will be judged according to their deeds. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But by faith, we can please him. and We can do good things and we will be judged according to those things. Remember what we said earlier. What you think and what you do comes from what you are, not the reverse. What you do comes from who you are. We do good works not on our own, but because of whose we are and the work that has been done for us. What I do does not determine who I am, but proves who I am. What I do does not determine who I am, but it proves who I am. Love what A.W. Pink says about this. He says the Christ life within 
is seen by the Christ life without. The evidence of Christ's work in our lives should be evidenced by what is without. And we will be judged by Christ's work and what flows out of us through him. This is the beauty of the judgment. Because in judgment, there is no condemnation. Because when we trust in Christ, we are now given a new heart and a new nature. And we're able to do good things in his name. And we are judged by Christ's righteousness and not ours. Amen? Amen. Now we can conclude. And what I want you to do here, just rejoice with me. First, I have to say, if you have not heard the voice of the Son, if you are still dead, I pray that you listen carefully. I pray that you cry out to God and that you want to hear the voice of Christ. But if you have, I'm going to require a bunch of amens from you. Every time I tell you to rejoice, I want you to say amen. If you have heard the voice of the Son, rejoice. If you have heard the voice of the Son, rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Rejoice that you have passed from death to life. Amen. Rejoice that you do not come into judgment and face second death. Amen. Rejoice because the Father knew you and sent the Son with life in himself. Amen. To sacrifice his life, to give life to us because he loves us. Amen. And he has completed his work on the cross and will complete his work in you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we can't help but rejoice and forgive our hearts when we become hardened and callous to these truths. Forgive us when we, when we take for granted what you have done for us. Forgive us when we don't seek the scriptures with all of our heart and soul and mind because we love you and we want to know what you are doing in us. Forgive us when we minimize your work and make it our own. Forgive us when we do try to do anything apart from you. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for sending your son that we can be resurrected to new life in you. That we will not be judged according to our works. That we have been given your righteousness. Thank you for the beautiful news of the gospel that the dead hear. Let us be ambassadors of that gospel. And let our words not be our words, but yours. And when we speak, they hear your voice and come to life. Thank you that we get to be a part of your kingdom work and you have revealed yourself to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.